Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a panel session from the 2019 IO Combinations 360 event. Dr. Matthew Albert of Incitro moderated a discussion about how AI, machine learning, and big data are used to inform combinations. Joining Dr. Albert was GSK, Tempest, and Quartz Bio. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, everybody. Uh, I think uh, it's probably a good time for us to get started with the uh, with the afternoon session. Uh, if you wouldn't mind all uh, taking your seats. Um, so we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the uh, the translational science and emerging biomarkers aspects of of what we've been discussing in the morning. Um, as uh, Drew uh, discussed at, at some length and we, and points that were made in the introductory remarks. One of the key uh, things that we uh, we need to continue to do, and maybe even do even better, in understanding uh, um, uh, mechanisms of action, mechanisms of resistance, the performance of platforms uh, in the clinic, is to really understand the, uh, this through the use of biomarkers and translational research. So we have a nice session for you this afternoon uh, that provides, I think, some really valuable perspectives. Uh, one of the challenges we talked about this morning was that the technologies uh, are hard to implement in the clinic. It's uh, difficult for us to, um, to really get into the molecular correlates of immune responses. And so some of the talks that we've put in the schedule today <clears throat> were selected uh, because they speak to some of those technologies. Um, so we have four or five talks uh, that speak to sort of omic technologies, single cell analysis-based stuff. And then we have a couple of talks that address uh, key combinations. We have a talk on uh, combining getezolizumab with, uh, with bevacizumab to, to query the and understand the, the uh, checkpoint plus antiangiogenic space uh, taught from Genentech. And then we have a talk from AstraZeneca on the PARP inhib inhibitors, which are kind of provocative based upon the fact that they, they may even push the neoantigen space uh, a little harder and increase responses to checkpoints in, by combining. So um, <clears throat> the first part we'll have is something I'm very passionate about but understand very little, um, and that's the use of large data sets, uh, artificial intelligence, and machine learning um, to identify markers from real-world evidence data sets, um, among other things. And we're very fortunate to have Matthew Albert, uh, uh, who will moderate this session. So I'll ask Matthew, uh, Edward, Ryan, and uh, Rene to join us on the stage. Rene just gave us a talk on their efforts in the, uh, in the precision for medicine um, space for Quartz Bio. We have Ryan from... Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm stalling a little bit here. Um, we have Ryan from Tempest, and uh, of course we have Edward, who's from GSK, who uh, can bring a perspective from industry. And the idea behind this panel that Edward moderate is to introduce these techniques and how those may apply to the discovery and development of biomarkers and further our understanding in the translational space. So I'm going to hand it over to, to Matthew and uh, look forward to a great panel. <coughs> Thank you, Ian. I also want to thank uh, Kate for uh, moving the, the, the needle for the field and helping to prioritize machine learning and artificial intelligence. I just want to start with a couple of introductory comments um, and uh, perhaps begin by acknowledging that I feel incredibly fortunate to be living in today's age. My, um, my, my formative academic years were at Institut Pasteur in France, 
uh, where uh, in, in many ways uh, life science emerged as a field. And I was incredibly romantic, you know, rom I was romantic in my thinking that it would have been lovely to live in the 1920s when uh, incredible insights were being made into life science. Uh, and, and that's changed over the last uh, decade, I would say, just because um, of where we are as a, as a field. And, and I think that if uh, Daphne Kohler, the head of in Citro, were here, she would uh, comment on our being at the cusp of a new epoch uh, that is uh, really um, uh, coming together as a result of the intersection of technology, uh, advances um, in, in computational power, uh, and uh, unprecedented uh, automation that is really changing the way in which we do science. Uh, and, um, and, and all of that sort of wrapped in a true desire uh, to, to do something meaningful for patients and, and figure out how to personalize care. And I, and I think that's going to be sort of the themes for this workshop as we try to embrace machine learning uh, as a new tool for being able to deal with uh, what, what Renee shared with us this morning uh, is the data deluge that many of us are feeling. Uh, in, in my new role at Incitro, we no longer talk about big data. We talk about ultra-high throughput data. Um, it, it is truly overwhelming. Uh, and uh, I am constantly reminded of the problem of P, the number of features in our data set, being much, much, much greater than N, the number of patients in our clinical trials. Uh, and this really is the cornerstone of the problem that we're dealing with, and one that statistical modeling has not figured out how to handle. Uh, and I'm very excited about the possibility of computer scientists and machine learning specifically uh, helping to point us in the direction. So uh, with that, I'm going to join uh, the group. Uh, Edward Bowen coming from GSK, uh, Ryan Fukushima from Tempest, uh, and Renee uh, Dehan Kenny, who you already heard of heard from this morning uh, from Precision uh, Medicine. And um, I'm going to stress that we, we go around, uh, offer a little bit of introduction uh, for the panelists and what we're doing in this space, and then we'll open it up to the group as before. Uh, welcome questions from the audience. Hello. Um, so I'm Ryan Fukushima, uh, Chief Operating Officer for Tempest. Uh, basically oversee all of products and, and leveraging sort of the combined data sets with um, our pharmaceutical partners. Um, and what Tempest does for a living is we bring together these, these clinical genomic treatment and outcome data sets, uh, mainly for ca cancer today, but also um, broader healthcare. And really what we're trying to provide is the, the necessary data sets to really find patterns uh, when they exist. Um, and we're doing that not just for pharmaceutical companies, but actually bringing those things together on a per patient basis to help physicians uh, personalize care, to think through, is uh, immunotherapy a good uh, option for this patient, uh, or is a targeted therapy or a standard of care uh, the best route? Um, and so I'm excited to be here today to talk through um, how we're looking at this, not just from a clinical care perspective, but also how we're combining these data sets uh, and, and looking at combinations to, to, to better predict uh, response. Hi, I'm Ed Bowen. I work at GSK. I'm Vice President of AI Engineering. Um, we're actually at an amazing time at GSK and, and I think in our industry and, and with biology as a whole um, and for much of the reason that you're here. But you know, what we're doing at GSK right now, we've just um, actually gone over uh, 40 AI engineers that we've added to the organization. So um, we've centralized that team and, and we're up to about 40 people in that group. 
um, we're making a huge investment in artificial intelligence and, and machine learning as a, as a tool, as a mechanism to understand the scientific data that we're generating. And we're trying to, what we're trying to do and what we are doing is moving the AI, the machine learning, the analytics close to the experiment and making it more a part of the experimental design. And so in the past where you do things like you might you know, look for um, affinity of binding of a molecule to a target and then anything that binds you might sequence, um, now we're saying, well, now let's also sequence everything that doesn't bind. Let's run the experiment differently to cr create a control set, to create additional data that will help inform the analytics. And we're looking at that across the entire continuum of research and development. Um, we're most excited about what's going on around doing computational target validation um, and a lot of the work that we want to do in partnership with scientists who are doing CRISPR experiments and we're doing functional knockouts. We, we're making a huge investment in our ability to do functional genomics work. Um, there was an announcement last week about our um, laboratory for genomics research that we're standing up in San Francisco. And we're, we've actually got a presence, an AI presence in San Francisco as well. We have about 10, 10 staff and Kim Branson, who um, uh, is now the senior vice president for uh, AI and machine learning at GSK. Um, so we're, you know, we're making a huge investment in the ability to use the tools to look at scientific data. And we, we just view it as uh, having great AI is like having a better microscope. Um, if you have a better microscope than, than somebody else, you can see things on the slide that others can't see. Um, if you have better AI, you can see things in the data that others can't see. And then if we do that in combination with how we generate data, um, and we generate data in a more complete way, and we can increase the number of N, uh, you know, some things are out of our control, but as much as possible, you know, drive the design of that experiment to take advantage of what AI brings to the table. Um, that's where we're expecting to have a lot of success. Great, Renee Dehan, Kenny, you guys got a great 10-minute intro to Quartz Bio, um, but I guess I'll give you a personal angle of where I'm coming from. Um, so I spent a lot of time, um, I got a PhD in biology, but then spent 13 years really doing true kind of systems biology. And an element of that is really building the appropriate computational tools to solve whatever problem you're using. And of course, machine learning has been a big part of that um, for, for the whole time. So that's great. So uh, we're at a cancer immunology meeting, and I think it would be appropriate to highlight some of the ways in which machine learning and artificial intelligence is beginning to uh, shape the way in which we're thinking about um, uh, cancer immunology, specifically combination therapies. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting work. Actually, Kim did some of that when we were um, both at uh, Genentech regarding uh, the neoepitope prediction for personalized cancer vaccines. Uh, and of course, uh, image analysis and computer vision, which is really um, transforming uh, pathology right now. Um, so maybe we can just sort of kick off the discussion. And, 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 and Ryan, can you maybe start us off by just offering sort of how machine learning is helping us move beyond proximal biomarkers in this space and, and, um, and, and your perspective in terms of where we're, where, where we're going? Yeah. Um, so our, our general approach has been first start with um, what data are we actually creating in everyday care? Um, and so part of our business is actually to help physicians, but the other part is to make sure that we're collecting the appropriate sort of data sets um, and not just looking at biomarkers, looking at these multimodal data sets across clinical data, images uh, from digital pathology slides, um, but also um, what treatments they're actually been, uh, being given. 
Uh, we see a lot of combinations being given in the real world, especially in off-label situations. And that actually acts as a proving ground for, okay, well, what would happen if we were to combine these therapies, even though it hasn't been fully validated or as part of a registra registrational study. Um, and so we kind of work backwards to say, okay, well, if we can ge uh, generate these data sets and organize them to really provide them to our partners on, on the sponsor side, the real question is, okay, well, what types of approaches can you, can you then take now that you can magnify the N from not 50 patients in your, in your study, but now uh, 500 in a, in, in, a, in a clinical setting. And so uh, we then start to first f figure out what data set do we need to assemble, and then we start the, the fun work of, okay, well, that, how do we start to tease out patterns that are actually you know, correlated to better response or even worse response in a lot of cases. And, and what types of approaches are you taking from a machine learning perspective to be able to address those questions? Uh, right now, we're, we're mainly using sort of uh, SVM models uh, um, to, to really kind of tease out um, what are the sort of the, the biological me mechanisms, of action, mechanisms of action that uh, we think uh, are driving response. Um, and so what that can start to tease out is just kind of reducing the search space of figuring out, okay, well, where should we be explore a little bit further, especially when we want to think about uh, other wet lab experiments that we want to run in a, in a sort of a preclinical pre setting. Um, there, there are sort of other models that we take that we've taken in a more unsupervised way, but uh, but SVM seems to be driving a lot of activity. Support vector machines for people who are not familiar. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, just be, Edward, before you uh, jump in, um, you've mentioned something that I'm very passionate about, which is combination therapy with off, um, uh, you know, off off label use. And you've got the FDA in the room, so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about how the FDA and regulatory environment should be helping to support these types of efforts move forward want to jump in, you can. <laughs> oh, Brian, that was for you. Oh, for me. Yes. Sorry. Uh, I thought you were talking to Ed. But I'm, I'm, uh, I, sorry. I'm saying you have, you have their ear. So if, oh. there's, if, if, if there's something that we need to see change in terms of a regulatory environment to, um, to bring that forward in, in, in terms of enabling a, a personalized care, you care using those types of approaches? No, I think that there's nothing that needs to be done differently. I think that um, what we've seen in the last two years is, is trending in the right direction. I think the, if you just look at the, the rate of approvals um, in this space, not just in immuno-oncology, but also more broadly in oncology, um, I think it's in the right direction. If you start to approve things and then wait for evidence to be generated, now that we can routinely collect this information, not just the outcomes, but actually the, sort of the, the clinical data and the deep genomic data uh, beyond that in, in, a, in, a, in the real-world setting, I think that now we actually have the mechanisms to really prove to, to, to ourselves and to the broader ecosystem that the these therapies are actually working. And so um, that's, I think that we just need to do more of that, this more routine collection. Um, and, and if we do that, then I think we'll be in a good place. Sorry, I do want to jump in. You have a different perspective. I've got something. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I guess for me, the, uh, huge, to feed AI, we need data. And um, we need to be able to have an environment where people who want to donate their data for research are able to donate it, and the people who use it are going to use it ethically. And what we're finding is that some of the challenges, some of the issues that we've had with things like Facebook and Google using commercial data or ad clicks and those kinds of things um, are leaking over into the healthcare um, and, and sort of the research area and giving and causing issues with people being able to responsibly and ethically reuse 
um, health data for research. And you see this in some of the European regulations that have come out in the last year, which have really kind of tied us up in, in knots to some degree in terms of our ability to use the data we've collected in our own clinical trials for, for research. We're very conservative in, in making sure we respect um, informed consents when we, when we use that data. And I just go back to my own my own point of reference, my daughter, when she was nine years old, was diagnosed with a medulloblastoma. And so she had a brain tumor. And, and part of her treatment, she's 21 now, she's in college, and she calls every week to ask for money, just nor normal, healthy, healthy <laughs> kid. Yeah, 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 just a normal, healthy kid, you know, um, all that stuff. But when she was nine, you know, she had the brain tumor, and they did the surgical resection, and then um, and they asked us, can we use this for research? And we couldn't sign on the line fast enough to say, yes, take the tumor, use it for research, use it for whatever you want. And the idea that some type of regulatory hurdle would be put in place that would prevent researchers, legitimate researchers, from using that data or those samples for research is something that, I, you know, as, a, as you know, her guardian at the time and, and knowing her now, and, you know, that she would be outraged by that because you know, she's actually right now working at a summer camp for kids who are dealing with life-threatening diseases. So, you know, she's very passionate about it. And so what we need to do is just make sure that the regulatory environment is not restricting our ability to use this data. And I guess maybe just not to take up too much time on this topic, but uh, two weeks ago there was another conference in Philadelphia, um, and the government of Quebec and the government of Canada was here. And they were asking what they could do to help stimulate this kind of research. There's a lot of AI going on in the Montreal-Toronto quarter um, up there. And we got into this conversation around, well, what if you had this data donor program, similar to what you do in the US with a, with a driver's license where you donate organs. When you sign up for your EMR, you check the box and say, I want to be a data donor. And then your data is anonymized and sent into a repository. And then, you know, the genotyping is pretty cheap nowadays. Um, the UK Biobank is a tremendous resource for us. That The UK, you know, they've genotyped all those patients. And I know we paid um, to have 50,000 of those patients um, full exome sequenced. And there's now a whole genome sequencing effort going on. But that, you know, industry partners like us would co-fund those things. But the idea is that being able to enable patients, whether they're healthy patients or whether they're sick patients. And I know sick patients tend to be very motivated to donate their data and, and they want it used for research. But our, our framework should enable people to donate their data and allow legitimate researchers to use that data to try to find um, health solutions. I, yeah, I, I would. Uh, I don't think it's an FDA problem. I think that um, it's more. I think a regulatory problem more broadly. But but uh, but in cancer, we see opt-in rates pretty uh, that are that are much higher than any other disease area. So ninety percent plus um, for data. Now the question, you know, if the opt-in rates are high, um, the real question is how do we aggregate these data sets? That's the, to me, from my perspective, is we work with hundreds of hospitals now. The real challenge is how do you aggregate them across hospitals? And, and that's not a regulatory issue. It's more of a data sharing issue. Sure, there, there are um, HIPAA concerns. There are other, well, yeah, there are other patient privacy yeah. concerns, even with informed consent. Yes. Having informed consent being machine readable is a challenge. So there's a lot of things like that that get in the way. And so that having a more open data sharing for medical research, a more open paradigm and infrastructure would, would help address that problem. Add to that the challenges that uh, we face in doing anything in Europe with the individual return of data to the, 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 the patient. And some countries don't allow the data to leave, physically leave the data center in the country right. that it's hosted right. in. But so, so, Edward, you, you, you said a lot of different things, and just to unpack a couple of them, uh, you mentioned it, and your colleague earlier in the day brought up the notion of an opt-in. But why not opt-out? Because that's actually what we do with Facebook and Google. We, we click to 
um, to, to not permit the sharing of the information. Uh, and, uh, and could you imagine that kind of a world, especially when it comes to human genetics and issues that then bump into um, insurance and privacy and, uh, and um, police state concerns? Sure, yeah. I mean, whether it's opt-in or opt-out, I think the, the inflection point is that people are informed and making a decision. And so um, if we can do the you know, opt-out, but we have confidence that people are informed and, and making an informed decision about their own data, um, that, you know, I, that would seem to be fine to me. But I think, again, the key thing for me is that people, they understand what we're going to do with their data. Um, we have a framework for what we would do ethically um, and responsibly to use that data. You know, we're not going to try to re-identify them. We're not going to, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and um, and we use Today. it. Today. Uh, well, but that's well. These are the things, right? So when you when you create an informed consent, even if you wrote it in 1999 it's still valid today. So whatever, you know, when we put that informed consent around it, we have to be able to explain to people what we would do with that data and what we wouldn't do with that data. Renee, um, you, uh, you mentioned in some of our earlier discussions something that I wanted to bring forward. Um, you know, as we make observations that are enabled by machine learning, uh, there's still gonna be a disconnect in terms of the understanding of the biological mechanisms that are behind uh, said prediction. Um, how, do, how do we move from a machine learning enabled biomarker to uh, you know, mapping those features to insights that are going to make a drug company feel comfortable uh, developing a, a molecule or a physician comfortable with prescribing that medication for their patient? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think that you can do that one of two ways. Um, one I would say would be a pre-hoc feature reduction method and really only feed the algorithm features that you know have some prior knowledge-driven or even your own kind of proprietary knowledge-driven connection with whatever the response variable or outcome is or the disease area. Um, so at least at that point, you already know that whatever you're putting in has some association with whatever is going to be associated with the outcome. Um, the other way is you can, I just call it the kitchen sink. So let's just throw, literally throw the kitchen sink and all data that you have at it um, and see what comes out. And you know, then you have to do a couple of different things. You know, first of all, if you do have a large P small n problem, you still might have to do some feature reduction. You might as well do it in a kind of cogent mechanistic way if you can, something that's hypothesis driven. Um, but even if not, whatever you get on the outside, then or on the other end of it, you have to really kind of almost look them up feature by feature and try to see, has anybody else done an experiment that has associated this response with this particular um, you know, change in gene expression or whatever your variable is? Um, and that is a very, that's an expensive exercise to do. So then you need another whole set of tools to be able to, to do that more quickly. And we've come a lot of way, uh, you know, far, we've come quite far with things like GSEA and pathway enrichment and stuff like that. But I think, you know, there's a real need to go beyond just gene expression um, and to be making connections um, between gene expression and all of these other variables that we look at in experiments um, and also kind of go beyond a, just an enrichment or a forward, you know, kind of causal reasoning approach because there's a lot of challenges with that. 
uh, just add one thing to that. I, I, I agree with that. And, and one approach that we've taken is just trying to find or even generate redundant data sets. So if you look at, okay, are you seeing the mutation at the DNA level? Are you seeing the expression level change at our RNA level? Are you seeing uh, changes in uh, so the immune infiltrate uh, from images? Uh, I think the more that you can take those redundant approaches, the better, obviously, um, so that you can start to triangulate, okay, what's true and what's not. It's a great question because it's um, the interpretability of models is a huge challenge, right? So um, we're doing some work. Um, if you're familiar with uh, the Broad Institute and some of the work Ann Carpenter's done up there around um, deep phenotyping of, of cells, um, and 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 the way that um, they describe it is, you know, there's different ways you can perturb cells. You can either do a knockout experiment, like a CRISPR experiment, um, or you could do some type of chemical perturbation, that kind of thing. But then you image the cell, and what you're looking to do is create a vector representation of that cell that gives it a fingerprint to some degree. And then you start to look and say, across different types of knockouts, do you see the same fingerprint showing up over and over again? And as you cluster them together, are they then related in some type of biological pathway and that kind of thing? And we've been doing a lot of that experimental work, but then you start to then get to the point of, okay, now I've got these nice clusters, you know, whether it's a T-SNE or whatever diagram you use to map that 20,000 dimension vector down to something that a human can interpret, you start to see those clusters on the graph and you start to say, okay, well, what does this really mean? How does this translate not just into a cellular phenotype but into um, a human phenotype as well? And so, I mean, it's a huge challenge. And, and as you say, you know, you're using the actual algorithms to try to um, reverse engineer and say, well, what are the principal components or what are the, the key aspects of the, of the data that we are seeing that's actually driving the phenotype? Um, and then you can start to map that to, to landmarks that you understand, like you might have, um, you know, so you know um, that, um, you know, certain three or four genes are in the same pathway. You can start to create that, that landmark and, and be able to map things to it. But it's a, it's a really important exercise for us because I think we can take a lot of data, we can analyze that data, we can start to create representations of that data, but then we have to figure out, well, what does that really mean in a biological context and how do we use that to inform our decision making around where we, you know, where we're going to invest, where we're going to try to, to design interventions. I want to make sure we open it up to the audience. If uh, there are questions, feel free to grab the microphone. Hey, now it's it's a really uh, big challenge. Uh, I come from a diagnostics company, Biodesics. Uh, introduce uh, yourself. Paul Beresford. I'm from Biodesics. Um, just looking at uh, the challenges in the research space is one thing. Then, as you go to the clinical diagnostic arena, right? You have a number of stakeholders. One that couldn't care less uh, if it's a you know a practicing physician in a um, you know community setting. They just want a good test that helps them make a clinical decision, right? They don't want to understand the uh, the basic biology of the underpinnings of the machine learning developed test. But then as you go into you know KOLs, they're like, well, how is this working, right? So, and our pharma colleagues in terms of associating with various different um, mechanism actions of drugs. So we've, we've approached it from the standpoint of uh, build the test with as much data as possible, right? So you don't introduce bias into the development of the test. And then we back into the biology through corridor of science, the PC approach. And that uh, gives you plausible biological underpinnings of the, the algorithm. And ultimately, you know, we've also done some of the feature reduction mechanisms that you guys talked about. So, um, you know, bridging this world of machine learning with the classic world of biomarker discovery and development 
is a real challenge. And uh, it's only now, with help from uh, you know a number of companies in this space, that we're starting to see folks really say, okay, well, that, that's a plausible approach. Let's uh, explore using machine learning. And as it turns out, you know, we're pretty darn effective in the P greater than M problem. That's a big challenge, you know, especially when we're dealing with small biomarker sets. A lot of these tests overfit, so there's various tricks of the trade. Montreal is a big, huge uh, environment. Joshua Bengio, you know, but they're dealing with questions that are quite different, you know, in terms of big data set uh, versus small biomarker data sets. So we're in a unique space here in the biomarker world. So it's it's exciting times, though. It's great comments. Well, and you mentioned Montreal, and so there's a group up there called Imagia, right? That, yeah, so there, and the, the, that's the same space. We're seeing a lot of that in the biomarker space, right, where you can um, use machine learning to interpret what, especially with expression data, right? What is it that um, would lead to a patient having a response here? And then hopefully, you know, make that a somewhat simplistic diagnostic, or at least a test the, the clinician can order out and, and, and appropriately diagnose the patient, yeah. Benedetto Farsaci from GSK Oncology Cell Therapy. Question is for the three panelists. Um, these kind of data sets, um, do you imagine these to be focusing only on in oncology patients or in general a larger population that, with the opportunity to find uh, what uh, characteristics of patients may be actually helping with the serendipity of finding mechanism of actions, for example, in autoimmune disorders? They may be also associated to cancer disease and understanding potential targets that uh, may not be may not be immediate for uh, being an oncology target and actually come from a, from other uh, disease settings. You see this difficult or feasible to extend outside of oncology and potentially also to healthy patients. Well, healthy patients. Um, so. Um, did you know each other? Well, I was going to say, you know, <laughs> we should have a meeting. Uh, so, uh, you know, as my GSK colleague. Um, so, I, you know, I think this is central to the um, to the approach that we're taking with our functional genomics um, uh, research. Um, so, you know, for, at GSK, we've um, we've we've created a, a, a partnership with 23andMe, which gives us access to almost six million genotypes, um, and we can do a lot of of target identification with that work, you know, basically GWAS at, at a power um, and, and, and seeing things that, that you just don't see in lower power uh, GWAS studies. Um, but then we move to sort of target validation and how do we, we, we validate what it is that we've seen in these, in these signals. Um, and that's where we get into the CRISPR environment where, you know, being able to do knockouts, being able to deep phenotype those cells, um, being able to do multiple readouts um, uh, and being able to then map that to some clinical phenotype that we have as a, as a landmark um, and be able to determine if not if the signal is actually truly there. Um, so I think from that perspective, we see it as being able to apply broadly. Yeah. But then when you get into the, the um, sort of the nuances of immunology and the complexities around um, the immune ecosystem and all the different cells that are interacting together, um, and how you can do things like activate T cells and, and those kinds of things. Um, th that's where we're going to be targeting in those specific cell types. So I think the, the approach works across all disease areas. It's about picking the cell types and the disease states that you're most interested in and then running those experiments in those, in those areas. And then again, after you do that, now it just becomes, well, not just, but it becomes a 
data generation, data management, data analytics, AI problem um, to be able to then interpret and, and analyze that data. Um, yeah, and I think one of the one of the really powerful things about AI, I mean, I think everybody knows it's great at images, right? So you've got, you know, it, it does a really great job of being able to pick out features and images that humans just can't see. Um, you know, text analytics, it's it's great at. Um, but what one of the other things that it does really really well is integrate data across different modalities. So where you might have an image readout that's been mapped into some latent space that has you know, 20,000 different dimensions associated with it. You've got expression data, which again is gonna have you know, 20,000 different readings in it. You've got you know, multiple different types of data. You can run those through things like autoencoders and be able to map those into data types that can then be integrated. You can connect things like building blocks in an overall engineering diagram, and then out the end, you would get a classification or a prediction um, and depending on the problem that you're trying to solve. So um, the, the power of being able to use AI to, to integrate all these different data types um, is significant. And that's why it's such an exciting time and what we're doing. It's really, I mean, a lot of the methods have been around mathematically for quite a while. It's now that we are exposed to low cost computing power and an ability to, to capture much more data than we've ever had before that now we're really, that we're using this at scale and developing methods that are more less about inventing new math and more about inventing new engineering methods to be able to apply it efficiently. Edward, you mentioned a couple of the very exciting uh, approaches that are being taken. And I would argue that currently we're asking questions that um, are perhaps going to be uh, providing deeper insights as a result of applying machine learning. Um, I'm curious about the questions that we aren't even thinking about yet that are going to be enabled by machine learning. And do you have any insight as to what that looks like and what kind of data is going to be required to make that happen? So questions I haven't thought of yet. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know what I don't know. Come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good, I mean, it's a good question. Yeah, you I can take a crack at it. Sure. I mean, we're, we, we do take a, uh, an approach where, you know, instead of focusing on the biology, let's just focus on the pattern. Right, and so we don't know about the questions that, that the patterns will ultimately emerge. And, and the question is, okay, if you see a pattern enough times where the signal is strong enough, the, the real question is, okay, well, can we trust that? I mean, we do this in every industry other than healthcare. It's like, we don't try to understand why. Like, I don't understand why a person clicks um, you know, a pizza ad even though that they were looking at Thai food the, the, the last page. I don't try to understand why that happened. I just know it happens, right? And so um, when we think about these, these larger real-world data sets, when you, can you, when you can combine clinical data, genomic data, and outcome, the first question is, okay, well, the unanswered or the unasked questions can also be driven by some of those patterns that you see. I think the lady from the FDA was first. Oh, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you. Um, excellent discussion, and I appreciate and um, imagine you involve an FDS um, topic. As a matter of fact, I'm here not only for tomorrow's discussion regarding the new opportunities for cell, cell therapy combination, but also I'm here to listen, to find out uh, your perspective, your input, and that about the challenges or the issues when you interact with FDA, what we can do to get things better the, is from that perspective. So I'm so glad, Matthew, you, you helped me with that job. Uh, and I also appreciate, uh, Ryan, your, your encouraging words. You 
mentioned out that we are seems that we are on the right track. I think my colleagues will be very encouraged that, and most of the times we get a little bit of different perspective, kind of like FDA, you do, you not do it, or do, you don't. But anyway, so this is very encouraging. I think we are very excited that we'll take back. And also, actually, I'm so happy, and, and Ed, thank you so much. As an oncologist, it's nothing more gratifying to hear that your daughter is completely recovered and so happy, and congratulations, I'm so, so glad. But anyway, so what I want to say is FDA is a scientific data-driven agency. And by nature of our work, we are behind the cutting-edge frontier scientific discovery invention because we need the data. But so coming to the point how to use those data, how to analyze data, how to collect data is a really, really important topic. And especially now, as this data exploding and this area this becomes more important. So we have a work shop in July, talk about the real world data in FDA. So I welcome everybody if you're interested. And I appreciate actually we have also discussions about the machine learning. We are learning. Um, hopefully uh, we are running, jumping with you guys together. Thank you. Thank you. you know, I, I would say one thing too about FDA is that um, I, so we had a workshop um, through a group called Transcelerate, which Transcelerate's a nonprofit that um, there's, I think, 19 member companies uh, from the pharmaceutical industry who participate. And, um, and they've got a really rich discussion that goes on with FDA across a whole number of different programs. We were talking with them about um, using historical data in clinical trials as a control arm in, a, in an ongoing study and being able to reduce the number of patients in future, in future studies, which, um, you know, I, I know in oncology there's, there's different study designs where you can run with no control arm or, you know, you use, you use um, comparator or um, uh, kind of the best in class drug today kind of thing. Um, but in, in other therapeutic areas, you know, we still give placebo to Alzheimer's patients and things like that. So anyway, what I was really encouraged by was you know, as we were talking about some of the issues around, you know, okay, so company A runs a study, they donate the data to a big database that Transcelerate manages, and then company B takes the data and they use it in their submission. How does FBA, FDA have confidence in how that traceability goes on? And the FDA colleagues who were present were talking, were suggesting, well, have we looked at blockchain? Have we looked at, you know, and it was like these kind of not, you know, really, you know, current technologies and, and, and kind of, um, you know, introducing a level, you know, some risk into the into the scenario that I don't think I'd seen the FDA really have an appetite for in the past. So it seems like there's a much bigger innovation agenda, and I think AI, you know, for things like dose prediction and and, and ongoing studies and things like that, um, where you'd be, you know, which would be looked at as very risky, you know, 10 years ago. It seems like there's a much um, more um, uh, encouraging tone being set about doing more innovative type things. You are absolutely right. I just want to mention, um, we are like an evolving agency, because of life, so we are changing as well. As we are learning, we are changing our regulatory policy, or our, we also retrospectively analyze what, what's done good, well, and what can be better, especially like an oncology setting. You can see that now the endpoints are changing, 
In the past, we asked overall survival or survival, but now actually not necessary. You can have um, intermediate surrogate marker, surrogate endpoint. You can have a single arm and small phase two study get approval. However, devil's in the details. It depends on which disease setting, how your data collected, everything else there. But thank you. Thank you. I think one thing, one thing to add on top of that is um, not just with the synthetic control arms, but also uh, think, rethinking phase four studies. So if these drugs are going to be given in the real world anyway, um, I'm, I'm not saying you should report, re replace the phase four study, but also definitely augment it given that you can now collect these rich data sets um, sort of in, in uh, somewhat real time. Um, and so it, those are sort of great topics. Renee, you wanted to jump in? Yeah, another, another way in which you were asking how the FDA could help, I would say encouraging people to publish negative data would be extraordinarily useful. I mean, extraordinarily useful. It, it, you know, it, it wounds me to think about how much we're actually missing out on. And all of this could really be influencing a lot of machine learning and putting uh, you know, just other available, potentially good label data out there for us to work with. It doesn't have to be a publication these days. You can no, just release the data. Not. Yeah, it's much, it's much better. But I do think people have to be encouraged to do so. Great. Th thank you. This is a great panel and, and great discussion. My, my question is to all of you panelists, how do you deal with, with truth? I mean, AI is only as good as the truth that you feed it. And other than false detection rates and real-world data, is, is something the industry is going to give us a sort of a, a, a measure of how truthful the AI is coming? An investment firm, you know, when we invest, we look at the beta, see what the risk is of, of that investment. Is there something similar that's happening? on the AI world? So we, we think about that all the time at Incitro. Yeah. And, uh, and it's surprised me how after 25 years as a life scientist, I'm all of a sudden talking about questions of causality. Um, we only know of one ground truth so far, and that's the germline genetics. Um, complicated perhaps in the context of oncology where we do see somatic variation coming up. Uh, but, but, but that's the ground truth, and, and the more I come to think deeply about how we, um, how we diagnose disease. I'm stunned by <laughs> the, the, the lack of rigor. Yeah. You know, lupus is 15 things, pick three, right? And, and we don't have really solid phenotypic measures for any of them. Uh, and, and I think um, you know, the more quantitative data, the more precise we are at mapping what we call disease states. Oncology actually has a, a, a huge uh, leg up there. And, uh, and I think there are certainly ground truths that are being used as clinical endpoints in oncology that are more challenging in other areas. Uh, but, a, but a ground truth is survival, right? So we've got genetics on one end and survival on the other. Um, and we should be able to fill that gap with a lot of very exciting intermediate phenotypes asking questions about causality. And, and I think the other, the, in, in, I, th I agree 100%. And I, I also think when you talk about error and ground truth, um, the delta is noise, right? So you're, and noise can be caused by a whole host of things. It could be caused by instruments. It could be caused, um, it, it could be caused by, you know, there's, you know, I'm not a lupus expert, but there's 15 criteria and three, you have to meet three. Um, maybe there's actually five different diseases going on there, right? And so we're actually, we're actually trying to call two diseases the same thing and they have different 
um, biomarkers uh, readings for you know for those, and and therefore when we try to classify them as the same thing, um, that's when we are introducing noise in the system because you've you've got 99 patients with one thing and one patient with another, and you're telling the, the, everybody it's all the same, and well that that hundredth person is actually a, a noise signal in the in the, and I think that's one of the things that that machine learning does really well is it deals with non-Gaussian noise you know you would expect noise to be distributed uh, normally but it's not and and so what we what machine learning is really good at is, is kind of dealing with that noise so um, so I think you know part of it I mean we're doing some work right now and I you know I don't think it's particularly uh, proprietary but you know doing a lot of work looking at um, instead of uh, using phenotypic descriptions of disease where somebody self-identifies and says or you know in the UK biobank they say well I have asthma you know uh, well actually let's look at their genetics you know we can tell with genetics that you know who's got blue eyes and who's got brown eyes if we ask the same question about hair color you know somebody in Scandinavia might say that they're brown haired but they're blonde to everybody else um, <laughs> and so but we can tell from your genetics what your hair color is so we could do you know can we do the same thing with disease so there's a lot of work going on around that so how can we get more specific about the phenotypes get more quantitative about how we do diagnosis um, and really kind of have much more clarity around the subtypes of various diseases which could lead to um, a better mapping of what cure to what disease. We've got two questions in five minutes, so we're going to take short questions and short answers. Dan. All right, well, I'll, I'll shorten my question then. Um, on the development end, if you're looking at identifying, let's say, a, a subset identifier, um, how do you imagine that happening? Are we still stuck with the paradigms of you know, you have a hyp hypothesis that you're going to test, you're going to have to look and see whether it works in the population I you identified, but you also need to look at it in the larger population because maybe the therapeutic that you're looking at actually works in the entire population. That, of course, is a much more difficult, longer and more expensive clinical trial. And so your thoughts on this area? I can start. Um, so I think um, on the early side of the development uh, and um, typically where we're getting involved is definitely in the target validations perspective, but starting with a very, very broad question of, of okay, well, what, what are the patients with the highest unmet need that are actually not responding uh, to a checkpoint, uh, as an example? Um, and then actually building a data set that actually can start to identify a series of signals or a series of patterns that we want to then start to explore as sort of new hypotheses or even overlapping hypotheses that the team already had. Um, and that's usually where we start. Um, and, and if we find something that's in, in, in the overlap, meaning uh, from a biological mechanism of action and also from a pure data science perspective, we're actually looking at the same signal or same hypotheses that actually drives kind of the development going forward. And so that's what we've seen um, uh, more broadly in the last, I would say, two years. I actually love taking unsupervised approaches for that as well, before even looking at anything, just seeing how the data displays and then looking in a post hoc way to see if there's any association with response. But once you're there, are you still stuck with, oh, let's say everything lines up perfectly and it looks real, you still have to run the, the final experiment, don't you? And is that final experiment still in the broader overall population? I, I, would, I would argue yes, until we can come up with in vitro predictors that will allow us to get one step further. We actually keep running the models in throughout the development process. So even when we start recruiting patients, we can start, you know, seeing okay, was was our prediction right, or is it holding true, or is it completely off the rails? Um, so we we do monitor it on an ongoing basis. Until there's a change in how drugs are regulated, and probably that would require a real move in terms of the safety bar. Uh, you still are, you know, required to run a 
prospective clinical trial. Well, but even without regulations, how would you know whether you've hit on truth or not? It's a big challenge. So, so my question, I think, is going to be pretty similar to the previous two and touch on things. And I wanted to push back a little bit because I, I think that machine learning is actually not good in the situations when you have non-Gaussian noise and especially when you have systemic bias to your data. Um, and so I'm kind of curious about your thoughts for how do you know, like, you know, it's the unknown unknowns, but how do you know that your indel calling is really terrible and it's screwing up everything? How do you find those sources of bias that are leading to crappy models and garbage in, garbage out? The, the way we've taken it, both from a diagnostic perspective, but also from a from a pure computational perspective, is is to have sort of multiple sort of redundant sort of measurements to see if you're actually getting the, the same answer. So, like if, if we just take the diagnostic approach uh, on on indel calling, um, doing cross validation, doing uh, validations with other labs and, and 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 multiple different sites is critical. And so that's part of the normal cap process. And the same approach we take to the computational uh, uh, sort of side as well to make sure that we can prove to our that you know we're not you know uh, subject to that bias, or in some cases we know that we're subject to that bias, and we have to kind of caveat and work work a little bit harder. Yeah. So um, so I guess in the in terms of noise, I know we've got less than a minute left, so I just refer you to some of Timothy Masters' um, uh, books. Uh, you know, he's done a really nice job, especially talking about like image processing and the difference between using like Fourier transforms where that handles Gaussian noise really well versus. Um, you know, non non normal yeah, noise distributions, but, yeah. but um, I, I guess the point is with bias. Um, that's a. I mean, you've hit on a huge problem in in in, in this area, um, in that you know some of these are a bit. Um, you have to be careful in the way that you frame the problem and the way that you've captured the data, and the way they use data that was generated for another purpose. Right in ad click world, using data that was generated for some other purpose is fine. In our world, it's really important, and I think you know we're seeing this more now um, in the way that we're designing experiments and and partnering it with the AI is that we want to inform the way the experiment's designed so that the data that gets generated reduces as much bias as possible. And so, you know, being able to sequence the 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 the, um, the, mo the molecules that didn't bind, um, publishing negative data. Um, you know, if you if you run a um, an analysis right now and you said, well, what kinds of targets are most likely to be successfully approved drugs, and you know that will tell us the secret sauce. Uh, the magic comes back and says, oh, kinases. Well, yeah. I mean, we've been yeah. you know designing drugs against tractable kinases for 40 years. So, you know, it's, it's an easy target, target to hit. So anyway, um, bias is a huge problem and, and, and trying to solve, uh, the way that we're trying to solve that is through being deliberate with the wet lab scientist and the AI engineer designing the experiment to generate the data upfront that will be ready for AI. I also think bias is getting a lot more of a look now than it was before. Um, and you see a lot of people publishing really data-driven studies on how biased our clinical trials are. Um, you know, they are typically done with white people. Um, and there was even a recent article that came out about how lab animals, yeah. um, they're, you know, they're male because they don't want to deal with the estrus cycle. So the inherent bias that's in the, this really important data that we're training on and the response variables that we're training to, it's, it's almost frightening. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just glad that it's, it's starting to get a little bit more attention. So on that note, I want to thank uh, Omada and uh, Ian again for including this topic in the, in the program. Uh, and of course, our, our speakers, uh, Ed, Ryan, and Renee, 
Uh, I'm very excited that we've sort of taken a step beyond the hype of AI and machine learning, and we're hearing some really meaningful uh, approaches uh, to how to utilize these new tools for cancer immunology. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that podcast from the 2019 IO Combinations 360 conference. For more information, visit iocombinations360.com.